I'm always thankful when my brother is in town and I'm alive to see him. Because I know one day he'll come to town to officiate my funeral. So it's kind of nice, but it also reminds me of my mortality. And one day it won't be so. I won't be here, but I'll be happier. Anyway, um, to introduce our guest speaker today, I could tell you he's an author because he is. Uh, he also is the host of No Compromise Radio and uh, leads that ministry. He pastors at Bethlehem Bible Church in West Boylston, Massachusetts, where he's been for a long time now. Uh, he helps teach preaching classes, teaches preaching classes at two different seminaries, uh, good seminaries in our country, uh, and the list gets pretty long. Um, but my favorite thing uh, about my brother uh, would be the fact that by God's grace, um, not only has God saved him, but he's given him a big burden uh, to proclaim the Christ of the once and for all delivered to the saints' faith. And since we've been studying Jude lately, it's perfect to have him come and speak and uh, really say the same thing uh, that we would be saying and to encourage us by proclaiming the Christ of the once and for all delivered faith. So let's welcome Mike Abendroth as he comes and preaches. Hey, I want you to do my funeral. I was just thinking about my mother's funeral not that long ago, probably 10 years ago, I guess now, and uh, to think absent from the body, present with the Lord, I want to say thank you one more time for all of you that were here, that ministered to my mother and served her. She was a member here, and she would teach the Bible. I'll never forget the time when she would call me and say, Mike, I'm teaching the lady's study through the Gospel of John verse by verse. Is this particularly a theological point Correct. And I'd say, yes, Mom, that's correct. Good job. And then she died several years later. And when she closed her eyes in death, I thought, my mom doesn't need to ask me any more theological questions. She has no more faith. She sees by sight, right? We walk by faith now, but she gets to see. And she is a perfect theologian. And some of you right now are bowing your head and crying. Would you just please stop it? I know who you are. I said to mom when she was dying, I said, mom, we've got to disconnect everything and uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord to live as Christ is to die and to die as gain. I said, you need to go meet Jesus now. And the last words I remember her ever saying, she said, awesome. So, Speaking of Jesus, turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, you say, I know John chapter 3 and I'm glad you know John 3. John chapter 3 is one of those things that you go to, the chapters where you think, who is like Jesus? There's nobody like him. Nobody compares to him. Uh, I'm compelled by John 3 because I'm compelled by Jesus. And every time I go to London, I go to the Tower of London. How many people have been to the Tower of London? And you go there and you think, you know, let's go see the crown jewels. And they're so spectacular, you just go every single time. You pay money, you stand in line to see these beautiful diamonds and other things. And now they have a conveyor belt. So when you stand there to gawk at the diamonds, to stare at them, to, to observe, you get pushed along like cattle. I can't tell you this, but I always tell other people, I have psych problems for lots of reasons, but one is I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, and on field trips in the 1960s, we would go to the stockyards. That's what we would do. Here's how they kill a cow. 
can't we just go to like Perina or something? And they've got these conveyor belts so you don't stand and gawk too long. But you find yourself almost imperceptibly trying to back up because you want to get a good look at those diamonds. You want to see those things. You just want to look and stare. And this is exactly what happens with John chapter 3. You know the passage, maybe the most popular verse in all the Bible, but when you look at it again and you see it in context again, it's good for the soul. It makes you think, I'm glad to know Jesus. No, I'm, I'm glad to be known by Jesus. Who's like him? Who acts like him? Who talks like him? And we're going to look at John chapter 3 today because Jesus is the center of the world. And this passage teaches us who he is, what he's done, how do you have your sins forgiven, are you born again. Now, the large context of John, right? Every time you go to the book of the Bible, you say, what's the big picture? And John is writing so that you believe Jesus is the Messiah. He wants to write so that you will acknowledge, yes, I'm sinful, and my only Savior is Jesus Christ. He's the one who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and that was confirmed by God. The gavel went down and God said, I agree with that work. The Father says, agreed, by raising Jesus from the dead. And so there's a series of, of I am statements, right? And it shows you just the deity of Jesus Christ. And so we now move into John chapter 3. And maybe for an outline today, if you'd like an outline. Sometimes I give no outlines, but let's give one today. I'm going to give you, in, in terms of a theme uh, from yesterday and today, let me give you some, some lies uh, that the world tells us that this text teaches the opposite of. So we're going to expose lies in evangelicalism today, maybe evangelical white lies with this passage. This passage will teach the opposite, kind of counterintuitive truths. So I'll probably give you seven lies. Why? Because that's the perfect number, of course. <laughs> Lie number one, that we'll just, we'll see the inferences and the implications in John chapter 3. First lie is a religion saves people. You can get to heaven through religion. Lie number one. And by the way, with religion, I don't mean James 1 religion. I mean adherence to beliefs and practices that somehow earn salvation and a right standing before God. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night, came to Jesus by night. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. True or false, Nicodemus was religious. Well, the answer is true. He was a Pharisee. He was a strict adherer to the law of God. At least he thought so, what he thought the law of God was. He wasn't a libertine. He wasn't anybody that just said, ah, whatever. We all go to the same place. He was very zealous. Did not, in fact, the Pharisees have all kinds of rituals for tithing? Did they not, in fact, have all kinds of rituals for washing cups for cleanliness? In fact, the answer to both of those questions is, yes, they did. And we are bombarded with religion's good. As long as you're religious, as long as you're a spiritual person, you're set. And now Jesus is going to talk to Mr. Spirituality. It's like if Jesus met the Pope, what would he say to the Pope? That's the setting here. 
Nicodemus. He's not a liberal. He's nitpicky when it comes to religion. And we're going to see very quickly that modern man through vehicles of our own hearts, uh, the Huffington Post religion section and everything in between, you think you can actually climb to heaven on a rope of religion and religious works, except when you get to the top of it, you find out it's a noose and it will strangle you. Or to use a different metaphor that's similar, George Whitfield said, if you want to get to heaven by good works and religion, it's like climbing a ladder made out of sand to the moon. I mean, at least he's not a pagan. He's, he's not worshiping like totem poles. He's not worshiping animals. And his name, matter of fact, means victor over the people. If you wear Nikes, that's where you get this word. Victory. Nikao, Nicodemus. He's a Sanhedrin member, the main ruling body of the Jews. It's like he's on the Supreme Court. It's one of the nine, as it were. If anybody has box seats, if anybody has loge seats for heaven, wouldn't it be Nicodemus, Mr. Religion? Except isn't it fascinating when you read the Bible? Those that think they are spiritual pedigree is the greatest are the ones that Jesus blasts the most. Because they don't think they need righteousness from another. They think they're righteous. They think they're good. And knowing that they're better than at least the other guy, they're set. Jesus didn't flatter religious people. Luke 5 says, Jesus to the religious, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And see, what's so damning about religion, it gives false assurance. It assuages the conscience. I think I'm good because I just do religious things. John Gershner, R.C. Sproul's mentor, said this. The main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Or may I add this morning, it's your damnable religious works. Because you think religion saves, but it, it doesn't. It does the opposite. It damns. You think it's meritorious. You know, I, I'm not a Molech worshiper. I, I don't commit abortion. Uh, and I do all these things. I, I go to church. I mean, for me, think about it. I've been to prayer meetings. I've been to confirmation. I've been catechized. I've been irrigized, uh, ir irrigationized. What do I call it? I don't know. I know the lingo. VBS helpers. You know this parable, don't you? Just listen. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, really religious, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying what? God be merciful to me, the sinner. See, the problem was the tax collector knew I am an extortioner. I am unjust. I am an adulterer. I am a tax collector. And the only hope I have for heaven isn't found in me. It's found in Jesus. Pharisee didn't see himself as a wicked person. If you could get to heaven by religious deeds, then why kill Jesus? Galatians 2.21 If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for what? 
no purpose. And the problem is, religion loves to help us just on the broad road that leads to destruction. I grew up as a Lutheran. In the book, Why Baptize Infants, 1981, Augsburg, baptism establishes a new relationship with God. Through Christian baptism, we have our sin forgiven, become heirs of eternal life, and can remain His children forever. Really? Catholic Catechism, page 321. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original and all personal sins. Religion doesn't save, but if you think you're saved because of that, and of course, in evangelicalism, we've got easy believism, so we walk the aisle, so we're good there, or we've had an experience and we spoke in an unknown language, we think we're good there. But here's the problem. Here's something wonderful to see in context. A wonderful issue with a bad problem. Look at chapter 2 at the end. Now, there's a really cool ESV Reader's Bible that has no verse numbers. I want an ESV Reader's Bible without chapter numbers. Because we forget what's in one chapter into the next. Chapter 2 is connected to chapter 3. I think that's kind of basic like theological seminary, right? 2, 3. What are those called, by the way? Uh, Integers or something? Cardinal numbers? Ordinal numbers? Do we know? Nobody knows. All right. Verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem at Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them. Here it comes. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone testifying concerning men, for he himself, emphatic, knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Get it? See it? Jesus knows what's in a man. So here's the thing. I can have baptisms, washings, rites, catechisms, confirmations, pilgrimages, climbing upstairs on my knees, but God knows my heart. And guess what? It's wicked. It's sinful. Remember C. Everett Koop, the Surgeon General, 20 years ago, I think, during President Reagan's time? He operated on Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor before Boyce, before R. Kent Hughes. And afterwards, Barnhouse was laying there after the surgery, and C. Everett Koop said, Pastor Barnhouse, I held your heart in my hands. Heart surgery. And Barnhouse, still kind of under anesthesia, said, Was it black and desperately wicked, deceitful above all else? You can do all you want, but we know from the inside, we lust, we have greed, we have pride, we have arrogance, we have self-righteousness. How can that take away sins? I think my dad in Nebraska, in Irvington once said, something about lipstick in a pig. Oh, sorry. Did I just say that? I fly home tomorrow, what do I care? I only wish it was on Midwest Express with those cookies being made. Don't trust religion. If anyone here thinks I'm going to heaven because of religion, you're deceived. And may I talk to some of the kids. If you think you're going to go to heaven because your mom and dad are here or you attend church or you're a good person or you've done the thing and you've been to VBS, that doesn't get you to heaven because how do you get your heart cleansed? This text exposes lie number one. It's got to be more than religion. Lie number two. The second lie that just kind of comes right out of this text as we work through it. I mean, I know it's a narrative, but there are truths to be taught. 
Lie number two. As long as you intellectually know about Jesus, you're going to heaven. Intellectual faith is enough. Now let's start right off to the beginning. Faith means a lot of things, and here's how the Reformers were defined faith. There's an element of knowledge. That's data. There's an element of assent. I agree with it. And there's an element of trust. K-A-T. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And without knowledge, assent, and trust, there's no saving faith. There's a faith that doesn't save. K-A-T. Forgive me, but that's the only cat I like. K-A-T. Sorry, just lost half the audience. I like cats. Look at what the text says. He he knew all kinds of things about Jesus, and Nicodemus wasn't born again yet. Came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, polite, maybe flattering. We know you've come from God. He doesn't say you've come from Beelzebub. You're you're satanic. We know you're from God. The signs that you do point out that you are from God. What's it say? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. At least talking about the miracle of turning water into wine in chapter 2. You're from God. You've got the right name, the right credentials. And And this man, Nicodemus, still is not saved. God's with you. I mean, you can believe in the virgin birth, and I hope you do. You can believe in the deity of Christ, I hope you do. You can believe in the literal resurrection, and I hope you do, and you can still go to hell. Why? Because it's not about data that you know. That's only knowledge. You can even assent to truth and still it not be enough. You can be afraid of the truth and that not be enough. The demons even believe in what? The Greek word is phrasousin. It's when the hair on the back of a dog bristles. It's as it were, no wonder the Jewish people called demons the hairy ones. Because figuratively speaking, of course they're invisible, but when the demons around Jesus, the Holy One, the hair on the back of their neck is emotionally shuddering. Demons aren't saved. You can know about God and you can have a a fear of Him or emotional experience. That's still not salvation. The the, the woman, rather, that uh, introduced me to Kim... Her name was Arya, and her real name was Shara, Sharon, uh, yeah, Sharon. But her false teacher, Jesus, so-called, gave her a new name, Arya. And I said to her one time, I'm still not born again yet, Lutheran background. I, I said, are you religious? And she said, uh, Arya said, yes. And I said, well, who do you worship? Jesus. I said, really, Jesus? You worship Jesus? She said, yeah, you want to see a picture of him? You know, I thought it was going to be like Jesus like the pilot Jesus, you know, remember that picture? And so I walked into her house, and there's a picture of Sharon Ladder next to some old fogey of a guy, at least 55 years old. <laughs> I thought, I said to myself, as an unbeliever, that's not Jesus. That's the problem with Omaha. That's the problem with the South. We know about Jesus. We got the facts down. Uh, we can su- subscribe to the creed. We've got apostolic you know, confessions. We've got all that stuff, and we can know everything. This guy knew everything. He wasn't saved. How do we know he wasn't saved? Because Jesus is going to say in just about minute, a minute, what? Let's find out. Lie number three. Number one, religion damns it doesn't save. Lie number two, it's got to be more than intellectual faith. Line number three, what you need, you can do. What you need, you can accomplish. I mean, can you imagine? 
you're unrighteous, you're going to stand before God one day, and you need to have your sins forgiven, and there's nothing you can do about it. But everybody's telling you there is something you can do about it. What does Jesus say? Jesus answered and said to him, verse 3, John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wait a second. Jesus answered him? Nicodemus never asked the question, but Jesus is answering his thoughts, not his question. Do you see that? Who's like Jesus, the omniscient son of God, son of man? It'd be said this way. Nicodemus, you don't need any more CCD classes. You need to be born again. You don't need more religious instruction. You know plenty. You need to be born again. Nicodemus, I know you because John 2 says, I know all men. And here's what I know about you. You need a new you. You need a new you to go to heaven. How do you get a new you? I mean, for me, when I first got married and Kim did something, I was very upset by that. And I took the dresser and I slammed it down as hard as I could in the bedroom. And you know what? I got a little hint for you. Number one, don't do that. Hint two, don't buy Ikea. Because <laughs> it just flies. Buy something good. And you know, if you've got an anger problem, you go get anger management. Take care of that problem. But I realized that moment, God used that in my life to save me. I don't have a problem. I am the problem. I don't have a problem to take care of. I'm the problem and I need a new me. That's exactly what Jesus said to the Pope. I mean Nicodemus. I mean you. You need a new you, so how do you get a new you? You must be born again. Or you can't, what's the text say, even experience resurrection life. That's what to see the kingdom of God is. Romans chapter 8, those in the flesh cannot please God. Corruption is so invasive, it's spread throughout, and we are now unable to save ourselves. And if we could, why send Jesus? But we aren't able to, so that's why Jesus is called a Savior. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Matthew one twenty one. she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, how do we respond? What do we do? How do you get saved? Let's continue. Number four, counterintuitive truth. Number four, our lie. Number four, if you will. Unbelievers think Christianity is is normal. Our unbelievers love Christianity. Our unbelievers can understand Christianity. Those are all lies. Biblical Christianity sounds ludicrous to unbelievers. That's the truth. Verse four, look at Nicodemus. Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Can he? Now, Jesus is not saying it's, it's time to start all over. I don't think Nicodemus thought that way. Carson thinks that Nicodemus was full of bewilderment, expressing even a degree of scorn. R.C. Sproul says, Nicodemus' reply was insulting. What are you talking about? Are you suggesting that a man has to enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? What a ridiculous idea that is. That's stupid. That's primitive. It's obscene. 
It's uncouth. It's boorish. Well, no wonder 1 Corinthians 1.18 of the cross says the word of the cross is what? Folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us it is the power of salvation. I mean, Jesus, at least you could die a martyr's death. We might like it. God must do the work. Look at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus' answer. John 3, 5, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You say, well, that's where baptism comes in. Really? What would Nicodemus think? If Nicodemus was listening to Jesus, and Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, and he's an Old Testament guru, what would he be thinking? I'll tell you exactly what he was thinking. Jesus is saying you've got to be clean on the inside. There has to be spiritual purity on the inside. You've got to have washing on the inside. How do I know that? Nicodemus' Bible, Ezekiel 36, says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's what Jesus meant. You need cleaning on the inside. So how do you clean on the inside? It can't be done. It must be done to you. New Year's resolutions won't work. Think about it. Verse 6. Super simple illustration. Do you see it? That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In a couple of weeks, I speak in Pittsburgh. And you fly past these steel factories. And let me just give you a little insight here for those of you who don't know. They don't make cotton in those. They make steel. And a heart of, of flesh, a heart of stone, a heart of unregeneracy doesn't make spiritual things. What is born of flesh is flesh. What is born of spirit is spirit. Steel factories in Pittsburgh don't produce fleece. Ethiopians can't change their spots. No, that's leopards. Ethiopians can't change their skin. Here's my, here's my pain that I'm feeling right now. This is a two-part sermon. I got one part, so here we go. We need a Savior. We can't do it on our own. And now Jesus says it again, verse 7. He changes the tense, though. I don't know if you can see it in the ESV. But in the original, it's there. Do not, be, do not marvel that I said to you, ye must be born again. I guess this is a good time for me to ask you. When I grew up, I thought there are two kinds of Christians, Christians and born-again Christians. There's only one kind of Christian, born again. I ask you the question, are you born again? Lie number five. Lie number five. You are in control of your salvation. You are the final determining factor for your salvation. The truth of that is God is in control of your salvation because God's sovereign. Look at verse 8. Jesus teaches it. People say, well, I don't like the sovereignty of God. I've talked to some of you this week and people think, all right, well, you know what? I'm going to go adopt two children out of an orphanage of 50. What do we all say? You are so wicked. I cannot believe you didn't adopt those 48 children. How awful are you? How selfish you must be. What do we all say? You adopted the two children. Wonderful. And here we have all of fallen creation, and God is sovereign, and the first thing we start doing with the sovereignty of God is bristle against it. It's because of our pride, I know. But bristle against it because we somehow think God has supposed to save everybody. He saves 
only who he chooses, as often as he pleases. And the text says it right here, verse 8. Like it or not, it's in the Bible. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone. See the analogy who is born of the Spirit. Because wind and spirit are the both the same Greek word, panuma. Can you control the wind? No. You might try to harness it with some windmill, but you can't control it. And you can't control the sovereignty of God. It's like the wind. You can only see what the wind does. Its effects, what happens afterwards, same thing with the sovereignty of God. True or false? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I hope you said true, because it's both in the Old and the New Testament. Spurgeon, I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody of his own free will will return to Christ. My hope lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold some of them and say, you're mine and you shall be mine. I claim you as myself. My hope arises from the freeness of grace, not from the freedom of the will. And God shouldn't choose anyone, but he chooses many and he loves to save his bride. That's who the son came to redeem. And that he would choose any to be his own precious possession, treasured, valuable possession, as Malachi talks about it. My friend sold a million-dollar set of earrings uh, to uh, someone who was going to go to the Bush's place in Kennebunkport up in Maine. And so my friend knew if they'll buy a million dollars worth of earrings, they might buy something more, right? You don't buy a sports jacket without maybe buying a, a tie, I mean a, a shirt. So he brought a $100,000 bracelet and a few other things. And he put the bracelet on the person, and he had his little Secret Service Israeli guy there uh, uh, to help him. And the lady put on the $100,000 bracelet, and she shook it like that, and she said, that's mine. I thought, you know what? When do I get to do that? So here's what I do. I'm kidding. I'm not kidding you. When I go to the dollar store, (laughs) I just put certain things in, I choose them, I go, that's mine. That's mine. I choose that. Sovereignly picking. Oh, you didn't pick those other things. I mean, who's your favorite football team? When I used to play in the sandbox, I had, I had the Yankees and the Confederate. I mean, the, the, the Americans and the Confederates. Who are we in Nebraska? Who do we root for then in the Civil War? But I, I pick my own teams. I have my own favorite color. I pick my wife. I choose, I choose, I choose, I choose. But God, don't you dare choose. How foolish are we? We're made in the likeness image of God because He's sovereign and we have that sovereignty in us. God chooses. It's like the wind. It blows wherever it wishes. And it's going to blow right on Nicodemus and John. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Help! You know what's in my heart. Religion can't save. I know the data, but it can't. I'm at your mercy. Lord, help me. Isn't that the prayer of the saint? Lord, have mercy on me. You say, I know I'm sinful. I want to be born again. Then it's time to approach the God who loves to save people. Save me. Rescue me. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you not the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. You Israelites, that's plural. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how should you believe if I tell you heavenly things? 
I'm just giving you the ABCs. Friends, if you think this is deep, what I've told you today is the ABCs of Christianity, according to Jesus. Ever meet somebody, they say they went to heaven and wrote a book about it, they're a liar. Jesus said, John 3, and no one ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Truth number six, we've got to wrap things up. Truth number six, that's put in the form of a lie first. The response to what Jesus did, here culminating at Calvary with the resurrection, is not do. The lie is do. Do something. The truth is, you have to just believe. You take it by faith. I take you at your word. The response to God's work is faith, faith alone. John 3, verse 14. The lie is do. I mean, that's built into our system. That's rugged individualism. Right, Rick? Herbert Hoover. As Moses, verse 14, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Numbers 21. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And what was the response of the people when they got bit by the snakes for complaining? What was the response? I mean, can you believe it? Uh, I got bit. I'm going to die. What should I do? When I get stung, I like squeeze it and try to suck out the stuff. Not with I, I've never been bit by a, a serpent, rattlesnake. But, you know, we've got these snake kits. Uh, if you're into uh, organic stuff and gluten-free remedies and anti-venom, you could probably put on some kind of aloe vera juice or something. I don't know what you would do. You're bit and you're going to die. God sent a snake to bite you and you're dead. But you've got one remedy. What's the remedy? Uh, see that, like that unclean thing up there, that bronze snake, you just look to that and you're going to be okay. Take God at His word, look to the snake, you'll be okay. No, no, I want to do something. I, I, I have to figure out something else. Can't you look for me? Can't my dad look for me? Can't my sister look for me? Can't my brother look for me? No, you're to look. Here is an unclean snake lifted up and you look to the unclean thing for salvation. And doesn't that just sound like Jesus, although he wasn't unclean, he was treated by God the Father as what? Unclean. The response to Christianity is to believe. The text says the Son must be lifted up. It was planned by God in eternity past to have Jesus go die for sinners. And the response to his death is faith. Faith right now, not later. Number Seven. The final thing, number seven, the final lie that I think this text helps us with is that here's the lie. God doesn't love sinners. God doesn't love sinners. Verse 16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that all those who believe in Him, whoever believes in Him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Why is this passage there? Well, you see at the very beginning, it's got the word for. It's, it's hooked to the rest. Why did Jesus, the eternal Son of God, cloak Himself with humanity? Because He loves sinners. The Father loves sinners. The Son loves sinners. The Spirit loves sinners. So go rescue those sinners. 
What is it like just to be loved? How would you like to have unconditional love? I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a true story. I met my wife through this cult leader named Aria who knew she should be named Sharon from Jesus in the picture and all that. I met my wife and I asked her to marry me on May 6th, 1997. 96? June 6th, the same year, we were married. One of the reasons was, the main reason, as I look back, because if she gets to know me, I'm sunk. I'm selfish, I'm brutish, I'm loud, I'm sinful, I'm arrogant, I'm prideful, I'm self-righteous, I'm selfish, and she's going to find out. Because when you wake up, like the book says, with the biggest sinner in the world, but it's you. But I thought, I'm going to be found out. And I know Kim's a, a lady of her word, so let's get married after a month. Now think about it. God doesn't know just what's been exposed. He knows every single sin you ever committed, are committing, and will commit. And he said, I love you anyway. How do you know that? Because the cross says God demonstrates his love towards us that while we are yet what? Sinners. Wouldn't it be good to be loved by anybody in the world? Yes. How about God? God loves me. And you know, we walk around and sometimes, you know, you see a dog and it just crouches, you know, when any humans buy it. Because why? It's just been kicked and kicked and kicked. I'm telling you, sinner, God loves sinners like you. That's why he sent Jesus, to rescue humanity. We get all caught up in what's world, elect, non-elect, Jew, Gentile. I'm telling you, he loves humans. That's the point. Out of all that, he's got every reason not to. As I said in Sunday school, if you spit in the king's face once, you're pretty much done. But God loves this way. And friends... As Christians, I know it's not the passage's intent, but here's my final little thought. It's an everlasting love. And when you sin, God doesn't love you less. And when you're obedient to, to work fruits of the Spirit, God doesn't love you more. Why? Because God loves you as much as He loves Christ Jesus, because that's what John says. And when somebody loves you like that, you're motivated. I know Kim loves me. That motivates me because I know she's going to love me no matter what. That motivates me to want to love her back and respond. I made them to know your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved them and the other way around. So, do you believe? Are you born again? Are you trusting in religion? Are you trusting in your own righteousness? Are you trusting in what Jesus did? And if you believe in the risen Savior, you can know and will know forever that when you close your eyes in death and everybody around you is crying, you're going to say and then experience, Awesome. Father, thank you for this day. May your heart uh, of fidelity and love uh, found in the Scripture here in Jesus Christ permeate our minds and hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.